Well, this morning we're at the end of 1 Kings, so we'll be covering a few verses of 1 Kings 22, uh, 51 through 53, and then the, the first chapter of 2 Kings. The greatest fool in the world is the one who does not believe in the one true and living God. The greatest fool in the world does not submit to God. Being a fool is not about having low intellectual capacity. Being a fool does not mean you have a low IQ, even though the world would say so. In other words, you could say that there are a lot of smart fools in this world. Fools who lead different nations, Fools who are in charge of Ivy League schools. Fools who have, great, who have made great technological advancements in our world. Rather, according to scripture, there is a moral component that comes with this word. In reality, a fool is someone who lives their life as if there is no God. Psalm 14, Psalm 14, 1 summarizes it well. There, the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. You see, this is a fool. He says in his heart that there is no God. For such a person, there's no regard for the one true and living God. There's no regard for his word. And frankly, this is what we've seen or what you've seen in the book of 1 Kings, specifically with the kings of the northern kingdom. Each king has repeated the same mistakes again and again, disregarding the one true God and disregarding his word word they have not believed in him they have not taken heed to his word rather they have opposed the one true and living God they have opposed him by worshiping idols they have opposed him by rejecting his word they have opposed him by persecuting his prophets And because of this, God has judged each and every one of these kings. Well, this morning, we're going to meet 103 more fools. All of which, beginning with their leader, their king, will challenge the God of the Bible. It is just astonishing to see what a fool they make of themselves. They make the same mistakes again and again, never learning from it. And because of their foolishness, they end up facing God's wrath. They end up facing God's judgment. And so in our text, I want us to consider Three aspects of God's judgment that show that, the li- that living a foolish life incurs God's judgment. Three aspects of God's judgment that show that living a foolish life incurs God's judgment. We'll consider the initiation of God's judgment, the prediction of God's judgment, And finally, the execution of God's judgment. But before we consider our text, uh, let me provide a bit of the context for where we are in the book of Kings. Ahab has been king over the northern kingdom. And as you've seen, he has been a foolish king, a foolish leader. He's been wicked. He's been evil. He's been leading his people astray. 
And because of his wickedness, because of his foolishness, God sent a prophet to confront him again and again, the prophet Elijah. And in chapter 22, we really see his demise, his fall, prophesied both by Elijah and Micaiah in chapter 22. He ends up dying in a war, what seems to be a random death, but we know it's not random. It is God's judgment for his foolish living. And now with his death, the throne is empty. It's open, so his son takes on the throne. Yes, it's a good thing that Ahab is dead. That's the good news. But the bad news is his son has not fallen far, far from the tree. His son, King Ahaziah, has been cut from the same cloth as, as his father and as his mother. He is a foolish king, a foolish leader. And we get a summary of his reign in, at the end of 1 Kings 22, verses 51 to 53. Go there real quickly. 1 Kings 22, verse 51 says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He became king after the death of his father. And his reign was two years. It was very short. However, that was enough time for him to highlight just how foolish he was. It was enough time for him to provoke our God to anger. Verse, two, verse 52 goes on to say that he was no different from him. That is his father. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother Jezebel, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who caused Israel to sin. The author of Kings has nothing good to say about this man. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed after his parents. Oftentimes, we would encourage that. Unless if your parents are Ahab or Jezebel. You see, just by way of application here, Parents have great influences on their children. If you are parents here in this room, understand that you have a great responsibility because you have such an influence over your children. So my question to you is, are you living a life worth following? Are you living like a model Christian? And from the life of Ahab and Jezebel, learn from their mistakes. Because of their lack of faithfulness to God, their son was the way he was. Now in our text, the writer continues to say that King Isaiah, again, walked also in the way of previous kings, Jeroboam. He allowed both his religion and worship of Baalism to flourish. Instead of uprooting the weeds of false religion and worship, he just perpetuated it. He added gasoline to the fuel and thus led Israel to sin. Notice what the author says in verse 53. So he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked Yahweh God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So this was to highlight Ahaziah was no different from the previous kings. He did the exact same thing. And this was a summary given about this king. He lived a life of foolishness. He lived a life opposing the God of the Bible. And as we continue to 2 Kings chapter 1, 
we see an account of just how foolish he was. And so we'll spend the rest of our time walking through chapter 1. And so we'll consider first God, the first aspect of God's judgment in the life of Hezai, and that is the initiation of God's judgment, verses 1 and 2. The initiation of God's judgment. This is the first point in our outline. And first, we began to see God's judgment initiated in his life through Moab's rebellion against Israel in verse 1. Through Moab's rebellion against Israel. Look at verse 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Moses. Now this is the note to which this book begins. Initially, when you read it, it appears to be a random passing comment before we really get into the life of Isaiah. However, I don't believe it's random. I believe this is God's initiation of judgment against him, against his foolishness, against the nation for their idolatry, because they continued to follow after false gods. God raised up Moab to rebel against King Ahaziah. In Scripture, we see many ways in which God judges. He does so through natural disasters such as drought and famine, as seen in the beginning of Elijah's ministry. But God also judges by raising other nations to judge the people of God. He judged Israel ultimately through the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And he judged Judah by the Babylonians beginning in 605 B.C. And this is also the case here. Isaiah has continued to sin against God, to worship false God. He has provoked the God of the Bible to anger. And thus, God has allowed Moab to revolt against Israel. The nation of Moab were descendants of Lot. By this time in Isaiah's reign, the nation was conquered by several of Israel's kings, and Ahab was one of those kings who, who had them under his control. But now with his death, an opportunity arose for them to free themselves, to free them from the economic burden that was placed on them by the nation of Israel. So the king of Moab, King Misha, took his chance to rebel. He thought this was the perfect chance to do so. You can imagine Ahaziah being the king, feeling the pressure from an opposing nation. This was God's initiation of judgment on him. In fact, this was an opportunity for Ahaziah to repent, to turn to God, to seek after him in this moment as the kings are called to do. But he doesn't. He continues to go about his way of living. And so he doesn't repent. And so God sends another way in judging him. There's a second way God initiates his judgment, and that is through a severe accident. A severe accident, verse 2. Verse 2 says, And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. He fell and got severely injured. And this is more direct, more personal to Ahaziah. And we're not giving too much detail about this accident except for the fact that he fell from the roof. The lattice here was a flimsy wall around the surrounding of the roof, supposedly to keep people from falling. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't help in this case. And Scripture doesn't describe his injuries except for the fact that it was a serious injury. This was a life-threatening situation. And we know this because of how the king responds. Look at the second half of verse 2. This is what he does. 
He sends messengers and said to them, He sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Aware of his life threatening situation, Ahaziah sought out sought out for help. But instead of seeking the one true and living God, the God who is over Israel, he sought out a foreign God, a so-called God. He was seeking him out for a favorable answer. Now here lies the problem. This revealed his heart. This revealed who his allegiance was to. In such a crucial moment in his life, he did not turn to the God of the Bible. Rather, he turned to a false God, a man-made God. He turned to Beelzebub. And this is the first mention of this God in Scripture. This was the God of Ekron, one of the Philistine cities. Literally means Lord of the Flies, which is fitting because there are a lot of flies in this city. This is the God who Ahaziah turned to. He consulted an idol. He consulted him to see whether he would live, whether he would survive. And keep in mind that this act of seeking Baal was not something, was not just a one-time incident. You see, this was actually a common practice for him. As we have seen, he has walked in the religious rut of his father and mother and of the kings of, of generations past. He has served this God. He has worshipped this so-called God. He had made his allegiance to him or to it. But such an act would cost him his life. Because God hates idolaters. It is the breaking of the first commandment. First of the Ten Commandments. It's a very serious sin. Especially for the ruler of the nation. By seeking out this God, he was implying that Yahweh was either non-existent or irrelevant or inadequate. But such an act would cost him. But this shouldn't be surprising to us because he turned to what he already was accustomed to doing. Friends, let this be instructive for us. If you and I are not submitting to God daily, if we are not seeking to worship God every single day of our lives, then when trials come in our lives, we're not going to turn to God. Rather, we're going to turn to whatever we really serve. And so that's what he was doing here. And so let this challenge us. Let this challenge us not to just worship the one true God on Sundays. Let this challenge us not to just turn to God when we need something. Rather, worship God with your life every single day by being in His Word, by regularly praying, communing with God, by submitting to what He has called us to do, by obeying Him, You see, when we obey him, that's an act of worship. And of course, when the trials of life comes our way, and it will, our response, unlike Ahaziah, will be to turn to God. Now with Ahaziah seeking answers from a false God, what do you think happened next? Well, God had something to say. God has something, had something to say. And this brings us to 
a second aspect of God's judgment in Ahaziah's life, and that is the prediction of God's judgment in verses 3 to 8. The prediction of God's judgment. Look at verse 3. The angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. As you can imagine, God definitely had some thoughts about this. He was clearly not fond of it, and thus he sent an angel of Yahweh to Elijah to intercept Ahaziah's messengers. Previously, Angels have played an important role in Elijah's ministry, and here we see it again. And often, Elijah's presence often meant trouble to those he was confronting. So Elijah obeys God. He goes with the message of reproof, and he intercepts Ahaziah's messengers. Now, what was the message he was to convey to the king. Verse 3. God says, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? See, with this question, he's directly calling out Ahaziah's foolishness. There's no question Ahaziah knew who the God of the Bible was. but he did not turn to him. Rather, though he knew and was aware of who the God of the Bible is, because he had heard stories, obviously, the problem was with him was that he did not want to submit to the God of the Bible. He just wanted his answers or his questions answered He knew if he went to the God of the Bible, one, he probably wouldn't get the answer he wants. Secondly, God, he would need to submit to this God. And he didn't want to do that. And really, that's the problem with all unbelievers. It's not a matter of having more evidence. That's not really what they're looking for. There's more than evidence. There's more than enough evidence that proves the existence of the one true and living God. Psalm 19 teaches us creation declares the glory of God. Romans 1, Paul says we see his divine power and nature in creation. Our conscience testifies right from wrong, giving evidence to the fact that God is real. Scripture also reveals the one true and living God. So it's not a matter of evidence, rather it's a matter of submission. Isaiah didn't want to submit to the one true and living God. And everyone who does not put their faith and trust in Christ, in the living God, it's because, of, because they don't want to submit to the one true and living God. They only want to do what they want to do, which is serve themselves. In reality, if if you're here today, know that if you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, know that it's not because you lack evidence. It's truly because you don't want to submit to the God of the Bible. You do not want to submit to what he has called you to do and that's been the problem with all the kings of the northern kingdom and that's been the problem with this king and so God confronts him through Elijah and God God continues by really giving him the answer also that he was looking for as to what will happen of his injury God says in verse 4 Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, 
but you shall surely die. And then Elijah departed. The answer to the question on whether he would live was a flat-out no. The God of the Bible, the one true and living God, would not allow him to live. It says that he would surely die. The, the verb from form here indicated certainty without a shadow of doubt. This sickness of yours, Ahaziah, would end in death. See, this was God's pronouncement of judgment for his foolishness. This was God's decree over his life. And this is a reminder for us that God is serious about idolatry. As I mentioned already, it is the breaking of the first of the Ten Commandments. That you shall have no other gods before me. But Ahaziah did. Ahaziah worshipped a false god. Ultimately, he was his own god. He wanted to serve the god that would please him. Thus Elijah gave this message of judgment to the king, to the king's messenger. That appears that there's no resistance by the messengers. They simply hear the message from Elijah and they return to the king as indicated in verse 5. There it says, When the messengers returned to him, he said to him, Why have you returned? What should have been a few days' journey was just a mere few hours. And so he knew something was up. He knew they didn't go to Ekron. And so they asked him what happened. And verse 6 tells us their response. They said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. These were the exact words from what the angel had told Elijah. It was verbatim. And so they conveyed that message to the king. And then the king pressed on for the description of this messenger of Elijah in verse 7. He said to him, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? He didn't ask who it was. He asked, what kind of man was he? Which is a pretty interesting question. And they responded in verse 8 by saying, he was a hairy man with a leather, leather girdle bound about his loins. Now this could mean that he was a hairy man or that he wore a vest, a, fur, a furry vest or vest. Regardless, it appears that the messengers did not know who Elijah was. But after they conveyed the description of this man, Ahaziah knew exactly who Elijah was. Look at verse 8. He says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. He knew him. And there's no question he had heard about the prophet. Elijah was used by God to bring about the three-year drought in 1 Kings 17. Elijah was used by God to defeat the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Elijah confronted his father Ahab for his treachery against Naboth in 1 Kings 21. Elijah also predicted Ahab's demise. And here... Elijah was doing the same to Isaiah. Of course he knew who Elijah was. But what's remarkable, even after knowing him and what Elijah has done, is his response. Instead of fearing God, instead of repenting, he did the opposite. 
You see, this was an opportunity for him to repent. This was God extending an olive branch. But Ahaziah, in his foolish ways, disregarded this. Instead, he hardened his heart, very similar to Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh saw and witnessed God's great power at work, yet he didn't repent. Instead, he too hardened his heart and would not let his people go. Here in the same way, King Isaiah is hardening his heart. There's no fear. There's no repentance. Rather, he becomes angry. He, he becomes vindictive against Elijah. And so, he ends up challenging him. And in reality, what he's doing is he's challenging God. He's challenging God. What a foolish response. What a foolish response. Now this brings us to a third aspect, and that is the execution of God's judgment in verses 9 through 18, the execution of God's judgment. Look at verse 9. It says, Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty. This clearly depicted just how angry he was. This was not some friendly confrontation. He did not just send messengers. He sent soldiers. He sent an army. He sent the captain and 50 more men. So 51 total men to confront and arrest Elijah. The king thought he could intimidate him. Maybe he is able to get what he wants by arresting him and forcing him to heal him. But if the king was familiar with scripture, and we know he wasn't, he would have known that this was a losing battle. The way he was approaching this would lead to his demise. So what do you think happened next? Verse 9 goes on to say, He, the captain, went up to him, that is Elijah, and behold, Elijah was sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. This was a harsh order. This was not a suggestion. This was a demand. And what was Elijah's response? Verse 10. Elijah, re Elijah replied to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. If I am truly the prophet of God, if I'm truly the man of God, as you say that I am, let fire come down. Let fire come down. And guess what? Fire came down. Fire came down and consumed them all. All of them, 51 men, the captain and his men, instantly killed this was God's judgment executed. These men followed a foolish king who disobeyed God, ultimately challenged God. Thus they too were sinning against God. And so they incurred God's temporary judgment, as we saw with the fire coming down. And now they're suffering in hell for eternity. Friends, let this be a sobering text for us. God is serious about sin. God is serious about idolatry. All of the messengers here, the army, the soldiers, were dead. Certainly now, especially after what has happened, one would think the king would get the message. Certainly now, he would fear the one true and living God. Certainly now, he would repent. 
But that's not what we see. That is not what we see. He does not repent. You know, this shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because this is what sin does. Sin makes us do illogical things. Sin manipulates. Sin leads us astray. Sin causes us to oppose the creator of the world. And so we see the king do another foolish act. He sends a second group of soldiers. Verse 11. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly with the first 51 dead he sent another chief and his 50 totaling another 51 men or soldiers to arrest Elijah again just such a foolish act when you get angry you do things that are illogical as I've mentioned, you do things that are foolish. Now this second chief went to Elijah and he did the same thing and he said exactly the same words except this time he added the word quickly. Come down quickly. It was a stronger, a harsher demand than the last one. He was probably thinking the first guy was not harsh enough. But we observe that the same result ensues. Look at verse 12. Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Same result as the first. All of them instantly gone. Judgment was executed against these rebellious men. And so we have 102 fools killed here by God. 102 fools judged. Certainly now, Elijah gets the message. Right? Wrong. He doesn't. He ends up sending a third group, third army, a captain and his 50. Friends, you can't make this up. This actually happened. Do you see how foolish this is? How foolish sin is? In his sinful anger, he somehow thought he could stand against God. That's insanity. Doing the same wrong thing again and again and again and again, but expecting a different result. And it's easy for us to look at this and identify him as being foolish, and he is, he definitely is, big time. But don't we do this? Aren't we foolish when we sin against God? Maybe it's not as public or dramatic as this. Maybe it's a little bit more private just with us. When we sin again and again against God, we're doing the same thing, essentially. We're acting in foolish ways. Let this text instruct you to examine your hearts. God takes sin seriously. And yes, it's easy for us to look at Isaiah and call him a fool, and he absolutely is. But let this lead you to examine your own hearts. Even if you're a believer, 
even if you're in Christ, we still sin. But unlike Ahaziah, let that bring sorrow to your heart and lead you to repentance. Now this third captain clearly got the message. He was different from the first two and he was definitely different from Ahaziah because he changed his approach. Verse 13 says, So he again sent the captain of a third 50, a third fi- 50, 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, Please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Unlike the king and the previous two captains, the third captain seems to be a little more white, a little bit more smarter, a little bit more wiser. You see, he approached Elijah, Elijah appropriately. He approached him in humility. This guy came and and bowed down before Elijah, begging him to spare his own life and to spare the lives of his men. He was asking him, have mercy on us. He appealed to God's mercy. And he did so with humility. The captain in verse 14 describes exactly what happened to the previous two men. He says, Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. He did not want the same result. He knew if he went and approached Elijah the way the previous two captains did, he too would have been dead. And he didn't want that. He learned. He saw what God can do. And he went to Elijah in a humble manner. And so he and his men got a different result. Verse 15 says, The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Elijah obeyed God's command and reassured, and the angel reassured him that he would be fine, and he obeyed. But here I want to kind of highlight to you God's mercy towards those who are humble. See, God is ready. He's willing to extend grace. He's willing to extend mercy to anyone and everyone who would come to him in humility. Jesus says those who are poor in spirit are blessed. And if you approach him in that way, He will extend his mercy to you in the same way he did with these men. And so these men were spared. These men were spared. Next we see Elijah finally meets the king who's been trying to get a hold of him. When the king finally comes face to face with the prophet, Elijah says in verse 16, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you you shall surely die. Notice this is the exact same thing from the very beginning what the angel conveyed to Elijah. The prophecy had not changed one bit, saying, you will certainly die. You will surely die. The sickness, the illness that you are suffering will result in death, and this is God's judgment over your life. And this is exactly what happened. This prophecy about Ahaziah was fulfilled. Verse 17 said, says, 
So Ahaziah died according to the word of Yahweh, which Elijah had spoken. God's word is true. What he speaks is true. And this is just an example of that being played out in this text. What God said was fulfilled. Ahaziah died because he continued to rebel against God. He did not humble himself before the one true God. Even though he had many opportunities. And with his death, the text says, Jehoram took the throne, his brother. And verse 18 continues to go on to say, Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Really, if you want to learn or hear more foolish things that this guy did, you can find it in this extra, uh, extra biblical source. So in these verses, we, we really see this foolish king. A king who is way out of his mind. An idolatrous man. Walking in the ways of previous kings. Worshipping idols. Provoking the Lord to anger. Continuing to harden his heart despite God extending again and again an olive branch. Because of his foolishness, he incurred God's judgment. For the 103 fools who did not treat God as God, they faced God's wrath. They faced God's wrath. So what are some lessons we can take from this account? Well, for one... God makes it clear that he alone is God and there's no other. He alone is God and there's no other. And he alone should be worshipped. And he is serious about this. He is serious about the sin of idolatry. Let me ask you, what are the idols in your heart? Sure, you're probably not worshipping statues or idols like maybe what they were doing back then. Ultimately, Ahaziah was serving himself. He wanted a God of his own making. And we can do the same things. And so what are the idols of your heart that you love and go after that lead you to sin against the one true and living God? Are your idols comfort? What about success? Respect from your peers? Is that what you desire more so than obeying God? What about control over your life? When things happen in your life that you did not plan, does it cause you to sin against God? Well, if it does, that's an idol in your life. Pleasure? Do you see God as someone who's preventing you from having fun? God is serious about idolatry. And we too can have idols of the heart. And we ought to regularly examine our hearts. Ask the Spirit to reveal our hearts. Where we're prone to wander, where we're prone to sin against the one true God. To know that he alone is God and he alone ought to be worshipped. Secondly, as we've seen, know that God is holy because he will judge. He is the judge. He alone is the judge. If he doesn't judge you or discipline you in this life, know that if you're an unbeliever, you will face him. And you will face his eternal wrath. Thirdly, 
know that God is merciful? We saw that in our text. God was ready and willing to receive anybody who would come to him humbly. If you come on his terms, he will receive you. If you come to him through Christ, he will receive you. He's ready to extend his mercy. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. And fourthly, real quickly, I hope you see just how true God's word is. One of the themes of the kings, first and second kings, is again and again, he sends prophets to speak his word, prophesying. And so far, everything they've been saying has come true. Proving, to the, proving us or showing to us that God's word is true and he will accomplish all that he has said. And for us in the 21st century, there's still prophecies that haven't been fulfilled. We can be certain that God will accomplish them. We can find comfort in that. We can be confident in that because that's how great our God is and powerful he is. I pray that we all would worship this God alone and bring him honor and praise. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for this morning. Thankful for your word. Lord, thankful for the example of Isaiah, Lord. Help us to not just read this as a story, Rather, help us to see this as a historical fact. And it is a historical fact. And there's a lot we can glean from this. Help us not to live a foolish life. Rather, help us to seek your wisdom, which comes from above, which is preserved for us in your word. And help us to live a life that is honoring to you. I pray the Spirit would help us to do that. And ultimately, I pray that our desire would to would be to glorify your name, that our desire would be to conform to the image of Christ for your name, for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.